let's let's think of the consumer first and let's possibly work with a marketplace that can ship it in say 12 hours where our DTC may or may not allow. Hello and welcome to ClickTalk. Every week we'll be hearing from the people making it big in e-commerce. I'm your host, Jason Chappell. Joining me today, I've got Samesh Devedi, senior e-commerce executive. I can't get my teeth in. Maybe I should put them back in. <laughs> senior e-commerce executive with experience of leading large e-commerce businesses in the FMCG industry. And you have a background in marketing at Amazon and Google as well. Samesh, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jason. Really good to be speaking with you. Uh, really looking forward to the session. Well, look, let's... Let's jump straight in with your your current role. You are currently, is it global head of e-commerce at Essity? Is that right? Uh, it, similar. It's global e-commerce director at Essity, which is a large Swedish multinational firm in the health and hygiene space. Um, I uh, look after e-commerce for them for the health and medical business unit. Uh, so across categories like incontinence, wound care, orthopedics and compression therapy um uh so essentially in, in the simplest terms the the role is to deliver sales growth uh, at a, a healthy ebitda uh across the globe uh across all of our e-commerce channels so there's pure play channels omni channel as uh, some of the more exciting novel ones like uh, social commerce and quick commerce but also our b2b e-commerce so this is our professionals healthcare uh individuals, et cetera, uh, we look at that as e-business. So e-business and e-commerce, uh, revenue and profit delivery um, uh, through through all of our channels. Now, I want to dig into that a little bit more uh, in just a minute, but a lot of people probably aren't going to have heard of ST, but they're going to know the brands that, that the business owns for sure. There's a few in there that people are going to recognize, right? Yeah, no, can you run through a few of those? Absolutely. I think with with FMCG sector or just health and medical, especially sometimes that holding company intentionally bails in the background. We want the brands to be the hero. I think our uh, world leading brand Tena in the incontinence category uh, is just so strong. Um, I, I think it's associated with incontinence at the world over and providing relief to uh, millions and millions of individuals. Uh, we also have a brand called Actimove in the orthopedic space. So the running community, community that uh, has sports injuries, etc., really familiar. Um, and then uh, we have Jobs in the compression garment uh, sector as well, uh, and then Locoplast and Rootcare. So our brands are really the heroes. And SCT, as important as it is, uh, we actually sort of bend in the background with brands being front and center. You mentioned briefly when you were talking. Uh, about B2B e-commerce. Now, this is something that I don't talk about a, a huge amount. Um, you know, a lot of the people that I, I talk to are, are very direct consumer focused. Um, but this is a huge area and seems to be something that a lot more people are switching on to, you know, a lot more broadly. How, how are you handling that? And what does that look like for, for you at Essity right now? Yeah, absolutely. So direct-to-consumer is, is a key channel for us as well. Um, 
but e-business it has a lot of our scale in terms of revenue so because of the nature of the categories we operate in we have a large number of b2b buyers these could be small nursing homes clinics hospitals who are doing digital transformation exercises of their own to drive efficiency to drive productivity they're under cost squeezes uh, working with all sorts of different stakeholders including governments and, and times and then as part of this digital transformation they're looking to simplify their procurement uh, so to move from cost-based procurement to value-based procurement, really try and understand the value of the services on offer. And then we work with these customers to help them learn the efficiencies they can drive through online purchasing rather than traditional form of, say, contract tendering. Um, and and the, the benefits are much lower overhead costs for them, better data access, automatic stock planning, etc., so yeah, we, we find B2B very, very exciting. And there's potentially a future where there's a little bit of overlap between B2B and B2C. Uh, for instance, a uh, data point I read was that about over 10% of all medical procurement last year on Amazon US, some of that happened on marketplaces, which are traditionally a more retail shopping environment. So procurement managers with newly... Uh, sort of empowered skill set from digital transformation programs would turn into an Amazon business to think of their procurement needs and not just uh, sort of working directly with uh, solutions that companies like ourselves provide. So I think one of the exciting bets we are placing is how do we prepare for a future where there could be a bit of an overlap between these two environments and what would procurement shopping look like at that point? Um, so yeah, it, it's really exciting. Both of those worlds are really exciting for us, B2B and then also the B2C, including the director can show. That's a really interesting point you raise about that crossover because that that must cause headaches in a sense that you, you don't have clearly defined, you know, sort of uh, swim lanes for you know those those products and services there, there's that that murky gray area you know in between where there's the potential that people might cross from one to the other backwards and forwards how do you even begin to start addressing that you know and and you as an organization have an awful lot more sort of insight and data points than than a, a lot of smaller businesses would how do you go how, where do you even start yeah it, it, it's a great question i think um, in a world where all of the channels had very distinct so consumer journeys and experiences, you could neatly divide your assortment by your pricing by each channel could have its own very different role. For instance, from experience, I've used DTC to drive, say, premiumization at times and direct consumer engagement, whereas marketplaces and online pharmacies could have our broader, wider assortment to sort of expand distribution, expand product views. Uh, but that is no longer necessarily true because the same shopper might look at marketplaces and then you direct to consumer. But also, the, because of the access to data and the transparency and some of these uh, consumer-centric real-time sales data, all of us seem to have access to. Now, B2B buyers 
are starting to understand what retail shoppers are shopping at. And if the prices are competitive, can they compare those two assortments? So it, firstly, it's important to establish that's a big challenge. I think how we are tackling it or how I've sort of thought about this problem uh, in my e-commerce experience is this is where omni-channel really comes to the fore. Um, and it's it's important that it's not regarded just as a buzzword. Very recently, we had a omni-channel day. And before the sort of big agenda came in, I remember saying, let's take some time to align on the definition of omni-channel as we see it. Because it, it, omni-channel isn't... It's not set in stone. There are interpretations of that. And sometimes some some companies are actually multi-channel where they still have different channels working really well within their own space, but not necessarily speaking with each other. Whereas some sort of really sophisticated omni-channel journeys mean the experience seems consistent across these channels or can play its differing role. But without being a jarring experience to consumers. So first thing we did was let's define omni-channel. Uh, once we have that, how do we get this to f the, the, all of our business fundamentals, starting from assortment, pricing, media activation, speed of fulfillment, etc. How do we start to see some consistency whilst acknowledging channel differences? So procurement manager does not need it shipped tonight, whereas a retail shopper might. But if a procurement manager is looking at stock where it's not ring-fenced for retail shoppers, do they get to see the same delivery promise? And if we are shipping it to them at the speeds that retail shoppers are used to, can we price in that convenience in a, in a world where profitability is so important? We all are operating under a cost squeeze. So, yeah, that's. I think the way we are thinking of it is we've take, listed all our business fundamentals across channels and then trying to see how consistent it can be, uh, business and uh, fulfillment fundamentals, and where it shouldn't be consistent. How do we uh, how do we price in any convenience that we're offering on top of the standard uh, sort of uh, offering? Uh, so yeah, that's that's how we're starting to think about it. Of course, it's a mountain to climb at this moment. <laughs> I I think it's a very good point you make about omni-channel versus multi-channel. Because I have a hatred of the term omni-channel because it is used incorrectly so often when people mean multi-channel. And I have no problem with omni-channel as, as an experience, but so many people are getting it wrong that it's one of those words that, you know, you're sitting there and somebody says it and you're like, that's not what you're describing you're describing multi-channel but you're using the term omni-channel like you're really great sort of thing but i i have the same thing in my world where people talk about growth and i use the term growth and i almost hate myself for using it because it's a bit of a like a wishy-washy term it you know it it's all encompassing and i talk with my clients about they say oh i want growth and i'm like but hang on let's dig into what you mean do you want top line revenue growth or do you want profitable, like increased bottom line profit? Like, what do you mean by growth? You don't just mean more. Everybody wants more, but more what? You know, so I, I have the same issue, omni-channel and multi-channel as I do with 
just the term growth and and people differentiating. I think you lots of these things. Yeah, I think you inadvertently touched on a point that's so close to my heart. I think it, just just on that, I wanted to share something as well. Different companies foresee e-commerce playing different roles. For some, for instance, it's e-commerce needs to drive as much growth as possible, top line revenue growth, and and sort of the profitability could be a bit of a trade-off at expected levels of top-line delivery because the metric they're looking at is what percentage are we driving through digital? It's a good metric to share on investor calls to be able to say, I don't know, making this up, but let's say a third of our business goes through online. It is almost signaling that we are are the future. We're setting the tone for digital transformation in whatever category you might operate in. There are yet other companies where Actually, e-commerce growth and all the resource and investment you might garner around it is contingent on you being more profitable at whatever metric you look at, EBITDA, operating, whatever it is that you look at, but more profitable versus rest of the business. And if as long as that is true, then the powers that be will, will sort of keep diverting resource, investment, uh, sort of keep including it in the vision. And if if you don't acknowledge the role e-commerce plays with your team or with the relevant stakeholders, then you're absolutely right. You might climb up the wrong ladder. And I've had sort of different experiences where sometimes the, the, a CEO has gone, no, 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 percentage of sales, let's keep going. You could be a little bit more naughty around uh, the, the way you drive that growth. Whereas others, no, 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 hang on, we need to keep our financial shape. And it's important we acknowledge and clarify. Otherwise, it's it's just e-commerce growth for growth's sake, but is it helping your company? Uh, it's just such a big picture to answer. But yeah, it really got my... And, well, th- this is it. I, you know, I think lots of people in the digital sector, you know, get hung up on digital metrics. But the company doesn't exist to service digital metrics. The company exists to make money and they need to be very clear on what making money looks like. Does making money look like increased market share? Does making money look like increased profit? You know, whether that be operational or EBITDA. Like what are the what are the goals for the business? Let's then utilize the the data points that we have on hand, they're, they're tools to help us. They are, they are not the objective. Absolutely. And I think so many companies get stuck on, I like picking on conversion rate. It's one of my favorite topics to pick on. And it's something that everybody relates to. Um, and there was a conversation online recently. And my contribution to it was very, very short because I said, what is the point? You could have a hundred percent conversion rate but what's the point if you're not making profit? Your company is not going to last very long. You or need to be making selling, some form of profit. Or you're selling five units. Uh, you could yes, have exactly. It's sort of almost artificially, or it, it sounds really contrived when suddenly conversion numbers, ROAS numbers are really inflated. I very quickly turned to, did you just close the taps on investment? Because obviously it's so easy to manage with a smaller scale. So in isolation, none of these metrics mean anything. You're right. You're presenting to CEO, 20% of sales is online, right? So what? 
would hesitate to say. I love Walt. I love that uh, sort of extrapolation into this. This is why it's worth your time. <laughs> well, this is it. Now, you were talking, Samesh, and I, I had a thought as you were talking. And let's take something like the Tenor brand as an example, because it's something that everybody recognizes. Everybody, whether they use it or not, knows what it's for. How do you take something that has been very traditionally retail focused and that people will pick up perhaps on their supermarket shop or visiting a pharmacy? How do you take something like that online and build out a direct-to-consumer offering you know, for that? Because very traditionally, it's been a bricks and mortar kind of product. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah. It, it, it's a it's a wonderful question. Uh, well, Peter, to be honest, actually, the, there's quite a few things working in the favor of a brand as powerful as that to to sort of provide the same experience or an experience of high class online as well. One is the brand equity. We are so privileged with Tena. The brand just carries itself everywhere. Uh, most people have heard of it. Anybody who suffers from the uh, uh, from the uh, condition has most certainly heard of it and is likely to have used it at any given point in time. So what is the brand equity is super helpful for us to sort of start thinking of it in terms of how do we replicate what's traditionally been a wonderful pharmacy, a wonderful grocery, a wonderful uh, so sometimes say a discounter experience onto online. So the brand equity is super helpful. I think the second bit is that because of the nature of the category, there's sometimes still a little bit of apprehension in talking about it across the aisle. There's still a there's still a small share of people who might like to do their research online about, say, incontinence, um, and then go into a point of sale environment that is trustworthy. It could be a marketplace. It could be an online pharmacy. It could be a quick delivery app. We recently uh, launched a trial in Spain uh, to do that, um, and we started to see promising results. And our job, the way I look at it, is e-commerce within the Tenor brand is don't worry about the brand building too much. That's been done for you. That's the legacy. We stand on the shoulder of giants to say amazing brand marketers, amazing trade marketers. They do their job so well. And all we need to do is execute within the point of sale environment what you would call a world class uh, point of sale, and and that is not just the packaging, the brand. It's also content. It's a really sensitive category. You need to drive superior education about the condition, about what is relevant. Uh, are you shipping it fast enough? Nobody wants to wait for incontinence pads for seventy two hours. How do we keep shrinking from 48 to 24 to 12 to further where we cannot match that sort of delivery promise? Let's let's think of the consumer first and let's possibly work with a marketplace that can ship it in say 12 hours where our DTC may or may not allow. So I think with Tenor sort of in, in summary, because of the because of the brand equity, it was super favorable. And then we've just executed uh really really well on it uh within and within the online world there's still a few bits we could improve around say content and we have heavy investments going into that um 
But once we execute on pricing, packaging, rapid fulfillment, making sure any adverse reviews are picked up on and acted on, uh, yeah, I think Tenna is just a great brand for us to execute. Now, as you're talking, I'm picking up quite a, a vibe of customer centricity that seems to be behind lots of the things that you do. Now, I'm a big advocate for this. However, it's a lot easier said than done, especially when it comes to big brands. You know, big brands can very often fail at, at these sorts of things because they have shareholders to make happy and they have a whole like host big teams of people behind the business who aren't necessarily in one place. You know, you're you're a global team and it seems that you hold this quite dear to your offering and what you do. How how do you make sure that that's something that runs through the business and that you're continually picking up on and making sure that the customers first yeah it's it, it's so profound this topic um i used to work at amazon things some many months ago um i was head of marketing for their uh, uk programs like treasure truck and a couple of others um and we, we used to think about subscriber acquisition and then also sort of worked within marketing in their consumer uh, personal computers category, which is a lot of cash for Amazon, essentially. Um, <laughs> a lot of... They, they're a bit short of cash. They, they need exactly a bit more cash. That. Um, and and uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm enamored by Amazon's leadership principles, one of which is customer obsession. And it's, it's, as you said, it's easier said than done. It's easy to throw in a conversation well, if like this. But actually, it's, I, I saw that company go to many, many um, lengths to say customers over competitors. So a lot of the time, I'll give you an example. In a business review, you'll start with uh, your sales and then work that through down into your P&L, down to contribution profit. And then you'd have a discussion based on that. What I absolutely loved about my time at Amazon is you'll usually start with the consumer behavior. So for instance, what I mean by that is, right, this week within this category, whatever that category might be, fashion, health and beauty, consumer electronics, what is it that consumers are searching for? And Amazon being Amazon has this trove of rich treasure data. You go and have a look, you know what, this year, or this week, people have been searching for, I don't know, yellow dresses. Or people have been searching for uh, laser keyboards. Um, and it starts there. So it starts with, right, if consumers are searching for that, let's now extrapolate that into what that might should have meant for the business and what sort of digital shelf did we show these shoppers. So actual screenshots of, if you look for it, is that a terrible digital shelf or is it a great digital shelf? And being really honest about it and being almost non-partisan and to who is winning that instead of saying, right, I would like for this vendor to win it because they are more profitable. But first starting with the consumer to say, is this a good digital shelf? Is this world class? If no, let's talk about that first. So one is uh, the reason I share that is I'm really heavily inspired by that way of working. 
And the, and as you alluded to, one of the challenges in a global team is what binds you. The people sat in 30 cities. A lot of us will meet each other, what, twice in a year, collectively all 30 people. Of course, we'll sort of meet in smaller groups all the time. But what do you stand for? What are you recognized by if you are... Uh, if you are in a room, so, okay, that team cares about this. Or what? how do you reason with uh, different stakeholders? And I think what we decided very quickly was, if we became the voice of the customer, if we made it very clear that we won't have any hidden agendas or motivations, we're going to come into a room and be the voice of the customer. And there are times by doing that, it may not turn out to be the most favorable thing for e-commerce specifically. For instance, there may be some assortment that is so well executed within pharmacy or grocery or whatever channel that it could be argued by the brand that right now the juice isn't worth the squeeze to move that over to e-commerce and actually there could be a little bit of dilution of customer experience. And, you know, if, if the argument is based on customer experience and we play that out, well, that is the priority. And that, that means lost sales for e-commerce? Of course, because we exist to serve the shopper, not the other way around. Also, as you said, I love that line at the top, the business doesn't exist to serve e-commerce. E-commerce exists to serve the business. And, and sometimes I think given how much attention and the novelty factor to e-commerce and digital, Sometimes all of us can be a little bit guilty of uh, sort of feeling a bit precious. And then this, I put my hand up that, oh, okay, we, we are e-commerce professionals. Well, there are other channels and other, every channel needs to play its role uh, working backwards from customer experience. So I think we work very hard. We do Harvard case studies at times, et cetera. To, and we try to answer, are we being customer centric? Or am I being sales focused? Am I being... Uh, a metric focused which is not really customer and of course you need the sense and the profitability there's no business without it but is it serving the customer if not it deserves a rethink sorry you went on there but it's a, it's a subject matter really close to my heart no I, I, I'm completely bought in you know it's a conversation I have with all of you know my clients and, and my prospects and everybody that I speak to I like to chew people's ear off about being customer centric and and I think the the difficulty lots of people have with it is that it's a much longer term play it's not how do I maximize I was going to say optimize but how do I maximize my sales tomorrow it's not that it's how do I optimize my sales over time and it's how do I make sure that I'm giving my consumer, my customer, the best experience that they can have. And I'm hoping that in giving them that, I'm engaging them for a longer period of time and that I make more money ultimately from them over time rather than just I'm going to squeeze them for everything that they've got today and then I'm going to upsell them this and I'm going to try and get these various things so I can increase their average order value and then I'm not going to see them again for however many months. Whereas the opportunity cost actually is, okay, I'm going to give some of that away today in the hope that it comes back tomorrow because they've had a good experience. 
And it is a, it's a very delicate balance to have, but ultimately you don't have a business if you don't have customers. So you've worked so hard and it's so expensive to, you know, to, to get customers to part with money, you know, to actually buy into your product and, and buy into the business. You've done so much hard work at that point. Don't, don't ruin it by, you know, pushing into, into something else that's unnecessary. That's just going to ruin the experience. And I think absolutely. And sometimes the healthy attitude to have is treating every customer as your most important one. And of course you have your internal matrices on what is, where do you spend your time? Are you sufficiently externally orientated? But when you are with the customer, they should feel like king of the hill. And, uh, and it's, it's down for, it's down to all of us to try and facilitate that. Now, Samesh, tell me, like I've spoken to, you know, some sort of like smaller challenger brands and they have their, their set of challenges that they're facing, you know, especially when we, we shine the kind of socioeconomic light on what's going on. What? What are the challenges that are facing brands like yours? Because you have a scale that is definitely different from from some of those. But I I know that some of your your challenges are are not dissimilar. Maybe they're the other side of the coin. Yeah, no, it's I'll say there's there's a lot of commonality as well, and uh, even if it's not just say our brands at SCT, but overall as I look at the brand space, think. In, in sort of when I was reflecting ahead of this call, I thought of three things, and it starts with really authenticity of purpose. And uh, what I mean by that is because of the need for brands to be purposeful in the modern day, as shoppers are getting younger and younger, they wouldn't just buy for features. They want to be associated with a with some sort of a cause, some sort of an impact, etc. Um, a lot of brands, I sometimes feel, uh, do what you might call in some aspects, I think, like greenwashing or a really quick fix to purpose, just try and invent a provenance or cause uh, that feels contrived. Um, so, and, and as I, it's, it's something I really keep close to. We look at brands all the time, uh, individually as sort of sometimes... I want to make sure that I'm in now. So looking at the investor scene, et cetera, but also as a company, we want to look at brands across really good categories. And uh, I think across my experience in the FMCG sector, uh, categories like femcare, intimate hygiene, or uh, really good nutrition and food D2C, these are really important categories. But the first thing that comes to mind when, I, when I'm surveying brands is, does it is it authentic enough? Uh, or is it a story that is just struggling? To, it's a narrative that's too big a leap of faith. Um, so for me, it starts there. I think, and and a lot of large corporations really, like I said earlier, are are fortunate that they have this muscle of marketing, not just from an investment standpoint, but from a talent uh, standpoint, uh, where where they can really, really sort of chip away at the narrative, mold it in shape. 
and and that's why we have the kind of brands we do. Tenna, I think, is the obvious example, but some of the other brands, Jobst, is so why is so heavily respected by the medical community um, in the compression space. Um, we have Actimo and Orthopedics, so I think it's actually I find it a little bit easier for the larger corporations, albeit the challenge remains. How do you compete with more novel brands, which now are built ground up with purpose in mind? Some of the brands you read about them, uh, and it just blows your mind how someone so young has thought of this and it's so close to their heart. They've actually suffered a problem and they've done something about it. And here it is in all its glory, and it may not have the marketing muscle of a big corporation, but actually it just tucks at your heart. And I'm, I'm starting to find that a lot of venture capital uh, sort of funding in this space is starting with that now. What is the narrative? How will you talk about it? What's the story here? So I think, I think for me, it's authenticity of purpose is the biggest challenge for all brands. And I think for the incumbent ones, how do you go up against as as shopping or as shoppers get younger and younger, how do you maintain an authenticity of purpose that can go up against some of these more upstart brands, which is which just no ground up uh, how to how to do it. Um, I, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that bef before. Sort of, I look at a couple yeah, of it's yeah. I, I I think it's one of those things that. Speaking with people on both sides of the fence is a really interesting conversation because, you know, those kind of like upstart challenger brands, they have their elbows out and they really want to own certain, certain narratives um, because that, like you're saying, is their purpose. And I think their their view is very much i'm going to get squashed by you know the big boys and the incumbents what i hear from lots of the the bigger players are actually we're really sitting up and taking notice of these these smaller brands and we are learning and taking as much from them as they are from us and there you know there there's that kind of mutual respect between the two that hang on a second, each has something the other doesn't. Um, you know, like you were saying, marketing muscle and uh, and a, a war chest, you know, that a big brand might have, whereas the smaller one is maybe a lot more digitally native and they're a bit more agile and their purpose is is very, very clear and they don't have to they don't have to work on their their message in in that respect. Them their business is their message and so they there's these two sides of the coin and both are looking at each other thinking i mean we all do it right if you have if you have straight hair you see people with curly hair and you think oh, i wish my hair was like that people with curly hair look at people with straight hair and think oh i wish my hair was straight so you know we always want what oh, we don't have yes yeah, so people just wish they had more hair <laughs> <laughs> i didn't want to say it so much <laughs> That's a that, it's it, it's it's so true. And I wish I could tell the upstart brands. Listen, to me. it's that is where a lot of the uh, I think future incumbents uh, will come from. I think what's that famous client? Who's it? Is it Google? It said 
the next Google will be set up in a garage. It's not necessarily just thinking about the big tech as competitors, but actually the ground up ones. So yeah, authenticity of purpose is really key. I have one more, which is which is not as glamorous as purpose, but I find that I should talk about it because it's so vital. And this is where I see some of the brands uh, struggling to cope, really, and, and that is uh, the distribution strategy. And so the, the flip side of being digitally native is that there is, but distribution is largely, say, online, which is which is fine. There's no, there's no problem with it. Uh, but because of the reliance of online and the performance marketing costs that are entailed in getting any traffic of scale into that shopping environment, profitability can sometimes be a challenge. And I think gone are the days where you would get a lot of venture capital funding on an idea in a pitch deck, isn't it? It's, what is it, funding winter in some quarters it's being called? I think vendors or investors want to see a little bit of sort of route to uh, black and profitability, etc. And this is where I think even digitally native brands should have an open assessment of how they see distribution. And can they, because there's so many retailers, so many marketplaces, especially in their online world, they want to work with purpose-led brands. They want to be seen as uh, retailers that have purpose-led brands on their digital shelf, on their store shelf, etc. Um, and, and that could sometimes, it, not always, it's not linear because you still have trade terms to honor and there's trade investment structures that go into that. So it's not that you just save on all the money, but at least it's worth a double because of their uh eagerness, shall I say, to work with purpose-led brands to see what does that do to the mix? What does that do to profitability? What does that do to um, sort of the scale? Can they help, can the production unit cost come down a little bit with that sort of scale, which some of these other channels uh, get? And I think sometimes I, I personally find brands that early on especially are a bit more flexible about that. So we'll stand firm on the principle, but we'll be a little bit flexible on the execution, um, I, I find that a really, really astute tactic versus I'm going to be D to C, I'm a digitally native brand, I'm going to stand in front of an investor and say that. Yes, there's a charm to it. But unless you double your feet into all of these other ones, you might restrict the scale where it doesn't need to be. Also, you might just stumble upon a route to better profitability. Uh, and, and sort of work that way up. Uh, so, yeah, it, I mean, we worked with, and when we think of these brands, we tend to think of just sort of consumer-facing brands, sometimes a business-facing brands, alternative routes to market, fulfillment companies, um, or fulfillment, sort of think of it as com companies that exist to sort of help companies like ourselves expand assortment, expand distribution online quite quickly. Um, we work with uh, a company called Penguin. I personally sort of worked with them uh, quite a bit. It's a third-party fulfillment company, but sort of highest rated in the health and beauty category. And I originally thought of them as, right, guys, nice and simple. Here's the assortment. Make millions of permutations and combinations. Expand my assortment. Ship the product in five hours. That's your role. And I think, and as thought of that as Amazon, 
And actually, over the years, I found, why is that? Let me think of them on marketplaces, on social commerce. They sometimes, well, not sometimes, they fulfilled some TikTok orders for us. And as I saw that expand, I thought, listen, the scale is great. These guys clearly know how to do shipping to consumers quite quickly and create packaging well. Why restrict it to one channel? When Tesco Marketplace wants to talk, whenever Tesco launches it, I want these guys to be at the ready to start shipping. Similarly, Carrefour in France, etc. So I guess what I'm saying is being flexible on distribution while standing firm on the purpose is, is a really smart strategy in my view. I have nothing more to add. I, I I am wholeheartedly behind that as as a solution because I think things are changing so quickly that people need to be able to react and respond and be open to different ideas. I think we're going to see, you know, I, despite us not officially being in a recession, lots of things are pointing towards you know, a slowdown in in people parting with their money, right? I think we're going to see some brands start to wither and die potentially because they don't adapt quickly enough or aren't open to different ideas as to how they do things. You know, the ones who are firmly stuck in, this is how we do it and this is how we've always done it or this is how I think we should do it and won't entertain a different distribution model or think about how they might you know ship or package or any of these any of these permutations then i think we're going to see going to see a shake up and you know from an investment perspective lots of people are struggling with raising money i mean we see my linkedin feed gets filled with people having raised you know money in a seed round or series a or series b funding um and that's great but what you don't see are all the others who haven't um and i think lots of brands are having a much more thorough kind of shakedown from investors to say okay why are they going to part with their money? Why are they going to invest in this? What is the purpose? Are you profitable? Have you explored different avenues? Because they don't want their cash to be used to test these things. They want the test to have been done and for those brands to come with them, come to them with a, a kind of much more robust set of numbers and a much more robust proposal that says, this is what we found in the market broadly. We've done lots of these different, you know, tests and experiments and we've explored different avenues. This is where we're profitable and this is exactly how we want to use your money. The investor then has a lot less work to do to comprehend what it is they're, they're being shown. Um, so it, it, it's really interesting because I think there is money around, you know, investors I, I speak with a few of them. They're looking for places to put money, but nobody's showing them anything that, you know, is kind of warranting in investment. Um, you know, and I think lots of them have also been burnt 
you know, they've been burnt by you look at large scale, large scale investments, like things like WeWork and all of those sorts of things where people were just, just giving out money like sweets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> WeWork, I think it's a great, great uh, example. I think sometimes the, let's just say the leap of faith is a bit too far from a rental real estate, of course, underpinned on digital business to a technology company positioning because everyone knows the price premium for tech companies is higher. It's just, it's just too much. And I think as you were speaking, yeah, sometimes it just, when I look at the brands, think, well, businesses in my humble view exist for two reasons. One is to contribute to the betterment of society. And then second is to be profitable because, well, then that's where it's a business and not another form of having impact, not for profit. Um, and, and sometimes in this, I think it's such an afterthought that the profitability or even the route to it, what you said, I loved it. One may not be profitable today, but I'd love to see the zeal to have explode a few things and to at least zero in on is where we think there is some potential. Can you help us guide us? Whereas what I'm not the biggest fan of is this is the earth shattering idea and it's going to burn through billions and billions of dollars before it turns any profit. Because not everything is Amazon, which you respect. And the long-term value addition, I absolutely have time for. Uh, but it's also being objective about whether it is indeed that, or actually we're just being, we're just not being adventurous enough in finding finding the way forward. So yeah, no, it's really, really interesting, that conversation. Now, uh, Samesh, you've alluded to, and we have very briefly mentioned you, your previous work history. I think this is enormously interesting. So you've been at Amazon and you've been at Google. Now, it, you you weren't just, you know, an average employee at these companies either. Uh, you've won awards at both of these companies for your your work and what you've done. Talk to us a little bit about about that and, and what you did uh, at both Google and uh, at Amazon. I, I'm completely disregarding Reckitt in this as well. You know, you <laughs> you were you also played a, a huge role there. But let's let's start with the the two giants that uh, I, people must have heard of unless they are living under a rock somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been very fortunate to have some really good employers, and all of the names you mentioned are really, really great. I think my sort of interest. Uh, I I love technology, and I knew early on in my uh, career that I wanted to be in the tech. Well, I wanted to start in the technology industry. Albeit, it's funny that I did not want to do tech roles. It's it's a little bit because a lot of my peers wanted to do tech roles and they, they've done really well. Some of the product managers have led really good products, but I, I knew that I wanted a commercial a sales or marketing based role um, within the tech space. So the intersection of tech and business is what fascinated me. So yeah, I, I think Google was, uh, was, was fantastic. It was everything that you dream of really and the great culture, uh, Great business, really. It's got the it's got the luxury of a margin rich advertising business, which could then be used to do so many experiments, right? And still hold on to so much cash. It's a it's an ideal uh, PNL, if you will. 
Um, yeah, so I uh, used to do, uh, I used to sell advertising really is the, is the oversimplification of it. And at the time, <laughs> when... you're doing yourself a massive disservice. I've, I've seen your LinkedIn profile. Well, so, uh, I think, it, so, but the core of the job at Google, I think really was that, that a lot of these advertisers um, would think of uh, primetime TV, for instance, as the way to convert shoppers. And actually, with, with due respect, that's how it's always been. And the channel has served immensely. There's nothing to say about the line marketing hasn't served. It's just that there was a different something on the horizon. And I was one of the people who were going into these advertisers' offices and saying, oh, have you potentially considered YouTube or Google? And like big CMOs and pinstripe suits saying, what? investing money on video and what is this banner <laughs> of search uh, so it was really fun times uh, pitching to say beauty clients hey glory glory i love you said everyone yeah, it's, it's a way to sell say lipsticks is not just by plastering billboards in the midwest of us you could do a little bit of digital but sort of the challenge in offline to, uh, online to offline attribution because they didn't just want to see you sell two products they would like you to see it they would like to see how do you make an impact in store with sort of price transparency etc uh, worked with sort of higher education universities to drive up their student enrollment so these are the sort of big ivy leagues of, of the u.s for instance a little bit uh, and yeah so it was fortunate to have won uh, a few sort of what they call gold awards uh, uh it's for, it's for uh i think I forget, it was a long time back, but it was for some big impact, outstanding impact or something they call it. And I think uh, before I started in sales roles, I was doing a little bit of supporting sales. And actually one, one of them I won there uh, because I think it was a uh, brand called Ziploc, uh, the, the resealable bags. Um, and uh, they had sort of, uh, it, they were starting to pull back on, say, display advertising, et cetera, because they were not necessarily seeing the value of it. Um, and we came up with a uh, with a way to help them understand that the halo effect of it. Um, so sort of online to offline as well, because when somebody's in the store, they might have seen a Google ad or they might turn to see pricing on Google, et cetera, and how do you use it to create that story that, listen, it's not just the click, but what that click does down uh, down the stream as well. So there was uh, one for that. Um, I think there was another one for just a sales pitch to a uh, to a beauty advertiser, uh, which got us a is a renewed contract and six months uh, to, to 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 position ourselves. And I think one of the things I forget the exact name, but one of the products we worked with the product teams on and pitched for the first time was something called Howard to play. So I think what, what I mean by that is some of the advertisers were concerned that we, you might charge us for an impression on a cost per impression model, but does that impression really mean anything? Someone might have been reading another article, just a thing, right? And I think back then, uh, they working with the product teams, we came up with something called Howard to play. So only if you are uh, hovering with your mouse over that for say, I think it was two seconds, or longer, it feels it, it seems very straightforward. But within a big company, to be able to, to come up with that and execute it, 
and then we got the contract back. Um, so yeah, one of them uh, was for that. Um, so yeah, Google Overrun was a, was a fantastic experience. I think it's a great company, and and one that has really contributed, in my view, to to the improvement of society last twenty five years or so of their existence. Um, yeah, and and I cheer uh, Google on from afar. Uh, I'll say with all of the developments as I do as I do Amazon as well. These two companies are kind of like the gold standard for lots of people. Amazon especially when people think about, you know, D2C sales and uh, and distribution and these sorts of things, everybody talks about Amazon being the pinnacle of that because, you know, from a personalization standpoint, you can have, you know, one-to-one personalization. They're always running A-B tests or multivariant tests and they're always improving what they do and, and just that whole business model going from, okay, well, we're going to start selling and then we're going to own more of the supply chain. And then we're going to own the whole supply chain. And then we're going to own the delivery aspect as well. Um, and we're going to run a subscription model on top of it. And like all of these other things that they've just layered in to make that experience as seamless as possible is what everybody is trying to achieve in some shape or form. And I think I talk with so many brands about, you know, them starting out and they want to do lots of these things off the bat. And it's like, well, actually outsource it. You know, you need to outsource these things, prove the model, grow your market share, increase your revenue, and then you can start owning more. Um, you know, use, use Amazon as the example. Amazon didn't start by what you see today with 50 tri- prime trucks down my street and you know all of these different things they just didn't so you know i think there's so much that that we can learn for from all of these things but um samesh what's 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 next for you what's what's on the horizon we are i mean what we are deep into q4 already several days um but we're there um and it feels like it's going to be done in a flash What's uh what what's going on for you next? Yeah, so I think also it's a short term and medium term really. In the short term, on top of everything we are cracking right now, I think we need to. Uh, I'm really excited about doing more in the east, in China and Asia Pacific. That's where I really feel like that region is the laboratory of e-commerce. A lot of the things that with due respect, might happen in other parts of the region, have been conquered, say, in China, some of these super apps, entertainment, e-commerce, live streaming, payment, ride-hailing, all into one. So I think what I personally am really excited about over the next year or two, really, is to to grow our business in those parts and take a really digitally native-first um, approach uh, to some of these countries. Um, just puts Alibaba Singles Day. I was just joking with a few peers last week, I think, of that. Just do Alibaba Singles Day well and then relax for a couple of months. Just the bloody scale of it. It's it's a few other deal events for two years packed into one, isn't it? I saw a crazy statistic earlier about them doing something like I can't remember how many billions it was in it one was day. Double digit that billion. 
USD. It was now, inc- insane. The, the, the rest of the world hasn't seen in Black Friday and all of these other days combined. It's, some of my friends who, who work in China, when I speak to them about e-commerce, and they talk about live stream commerce, for instance. And to, so if someone like me sat, sat here in London, we tend to sort of associate that sort of thing with, say, QVC style US, hold up your product, here's what you can buy. But actually, it couldn't be further from the truth. It's real-time entertainment with product shopping seamlessly embedded. You could be watching your content after a long day, and the product placement is seamless onto purchase. And it's something we really want to trial, for instance. How, how do we get that going with the running community, compression garments, which enhance performance while running? Um, so, so for me, short term, it's China and Asia, Southeast Asia, Thailand, Indonesia. How do we really, really uh, get in line with with uh, with the vibe, e-commerce vibe of that region? I say, which I think is at the forefront really for on, for a lot of things. Um, and I think in the more medium term, we are preparing for what does AI mean for e-commerce? I, I think there's a little bit of sort of metaverse and and. Metaverse is still something we need to prepare for. I'm incredibly excited about, but I think AI has just really crept up on us. And for I'll give you a specific example. It just gets thrown about a lot, but I'll give you a specific example. One of my challenges is content development at scale. So my team, brilliant team, but so many brands, so many channels, and sort of a hitherto traditional uh, channel mix struggles to take say brand toolkits and make them fit for purpose for e-commerce say, overnight. It's a process. It takes a while, content licenses, etc. costs. I went to a conference. It was a digital marketing or something in London, and I was presenting at it. After presenting, I went out, and there were a few stalls set up by what they called AI providers. And it was just really a young, uh, I think, person on a MacBook and a headphones. And it should end up and out of curiosity, right? What what is this? I said uh, content creation, and the content creation what they meant was preliminary data, a little bit of description of the product, a couple of images, as we produce six hundred images. It, data management is is you still need to manage it, and it can get very chaotic. But I was thinking, hang on a minute, I feel so stupid. <laughs> we spent five minutes trying to resolve this. And the, the, all the well-paid people finding time together to try and crack this. And here you are telling me that AI at scale produces 600 images after three minutes of King. So, yep. And, and it's just blown my mind. Uh, so we really need to see how can we integrate that sort of thing into big business like ours with all its quality and legal requirements. But I'm so keen. I'm so desperate for a world where you plug things in into uh, these AI tool providers and my content team has everything they need. Similarly in fulfillment, et cetera, how do you get better signals? Uh, how can you become a, so for instance, Amazon does not necessarily order in line with consumption like a traditional retailer would. Forecasting is trickier. How do you, how do you fortify your forecast a little bit more with better data points, et cetera? Um, so yeah, I'll say China, Asia one, and AI two uh, is is where we are going to focus our energies up.
Perfect. Well, look, I could probably talk to you all day and all evening, but that's probably a good place to leave it. Well, so thank you so much, Sebesh. This has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you for having me, Jason. Really appreciate it.